Good morning. I'm Pastor Steve, if you're new here, and uh, I have a question for you, like I sometimes do. What makes you angry? Um, if you're really sanctified, you can say nothing, um, and then we'll know you're delusional and not really aware. So you could just ask your spouse or your friend what makes you angry in that case. Um, so why don't you think about that? What makes you angry? What made you angry this week? What were you outraged about? Maybe it was something in your personal life. Maybe it was uh, something in America or the world or the neighborhood. Um, Everybody thought of something? You want to share it with somebody next to you? Or one of the things that you're willing to share with somebody next to you? Okay, somebody tell me what, you, what makes you angry. Yeah. Potholes, okay. All right, we have opportunity to be angry in this season. But you should come to Tanzania and Kenya. Um, yeah. Unrighteousness and injustice, okay? And does somebody else have an example of that? Or just another thing that makes you angry? Arrogance and condescension. Okay. I won't look down on you for that statement, but... Somebody else? When your wife beats you at Boggle. Okay. So Dominic doesn't like when his wife beats him. That's, uh, <clears throat> that's what editing will do for you. Um, yeah. I get that. Yeah, okay. Somebody else? Uh-huh. When people don't do stuff the way you think they should have. A few agreements there. Uh-huh. Very good. Control. Uh, when you don't have control or when you do have people who want control over you and yours or others. Yeah, okay. Controlling people. Okay. All right. Good. Somebody else? Short staff at work. Yeah. So that means you get to work more, right? Uh-huh. Harder. Yep. Uh-huh. Younger siblings remind you of some little shame there, okay? Younger siblings maybe in general. Older siblings in general. Yep. Pointless arguments, okay? When things get out of order, okay? Politics, okay? Democrats, okay? What? Trump. Okay. We're playing even here now. With a one for one. Uh-huh. It sounds like there's some other people who might be agreeing with one or the other of those. Yeah, okay. What's that? Politics in general. Okay. Um, and politicians are trying to make you mad, right? They're trying to tell you how terrible everything is. Um, 
Yep. How terrible all the other candidates on the stage are. And the other candidate, yep, okay. You can't figure out how to use technology, yeah, okay. When the school system doesn't teach you how to be an adult, yeah, okay. Disrespect, okay. Uh. There we go, let's get specific. Yep, all right. You do all that laundry, the least they could do. All right, very good. Broken shoelaces, okay. Yeah, those little inconveniences. Um, all right, so lots of things. Maybe we'll have other things next week. Uh, hopefully not teacher strikes. or There's lots of things we could get angry about, right? So... Um, something is very wrong. More wrong than broken shoelaces and, and uh, mixed up laundry, actually. Um, something's very wrong and very unjust, and it must be made right. Right? And that is the message that people are giving. For example, politicians are telling you something's really wrong, and it's got to be made right. And I'm the one, <laughs> exactly, who's going to make it right. <laughs> and all those other people are not. In fact, they're the problem, right? Um, so something is very wrong. Is that true? And, some, and it's got to be made right. It can't just be kind of passed over, right? Like, oh, never mind. Don't forgive and forget. Move on. Am I right? I mean, Harvey Weinstein got uh, convicted. And uh, nobody seemed to be too sad about that because it felt like he had done some really bad things. This hashtag MeToo got people upset because that was really bad and he needed to be held accountable. Not impunity, right? So things go wrong and we want things to be made right. Um, and... Not only that, but when you look around the world, things are, this coronavirus is messing things up, and we want that to be made right. And we, things are wrong in, in uh, it was interesting, nobody mentioned anything outside of, of uh, the U.S. There are some things out, wrong outside of the U.S. too. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? The things that make us mo most angry are the things in uh, my backyard or maybe my laundry machine even, right? So the things that are, affect us, things that affect other people, we're not, so angry about or upset about. Um, but here's the interesting thing. When it comes to God, we think he shouldn't be angry. But God is just and loving, so shouldn't he be angry? When there's as much injustice and bad stuff happening, and when God's trying to love people and they reject him, shouldn't he be angry? But we kind of like a God... You know, we say, oh, that was the Old Testament God, but this New Testament God, he's loving, and he just pardons everybody, just writes it off. We, we want him to pardon Harvey Weinstein? I mean, sometimes pardons, people get upset about who gets pardoned, right? Do we want everybody pardoned? Most of us want me pardoned, but not him. And we want us, but not them, to get off. Am I right? Something is really wrong, and what really bothers me is when I realize that it's not just them out there, 
it's me in here. And when I get upset, and then I get upset about things, and then I realize that, you know, so even this week, Friday, Friday night, Jan was telling me she had a, a hard week, and then I listened to her, and then I got upset about some little, little thing I felt neglected about. And afterwards, I thought, that was really bad. Because <laughs> that was not, that was unjust. That was wrong for me, because it wasn't a big deal. So the little things, that, but it's not just that. It's also bigger things. If I, if I push them, will you get angry with me? So 9-11, 3,000 people got killed. 140,000 civilians or some have been killed in Iraq, and, and they were, Iraq wasn't even related to that. When I'm responsible somehow for things that are happening um, out there, that's the problem. See, the problem is it's not just those people. It's me and it's us. And when I start thinking about the things that are wrong, I'm part of the system that's making it wrong. And I don't, I don't even know how to not be part of the system that makes it wrong. It's a lot easier if we can talk about those people and how they don't get it and, ooh, we can be upset about them. Right? But then those people are reading my posts and they're writing other things about me and those people, right? So what's the bad news? What's the good news? Now, we already told you the politicians have a, a layout for what the bad news is, and they have the solution, the good news. All of them have a different one, um, but they have the solution. And then there's the commercial. Every commercial you see is telling you this is the bad news, and this is the good news. Most of it's kind of implied, like, yeah, people don't really like you. But if you had this car, wow, you would be something. If you, and all the colleges are telling you if you could get a degree from them, that would solve your problems. And then there's the, rom the romantic movies, and the, the, this would solve your problems. Everybody's got a solution for the bad news. And we like to hear those solutions. And, and it's even better when it's like a sitcom, and in like half an hour, an hour, it's just solved, right? Um, but life isn't quite like that. Something's really wrong. In fact, um, the bad news is much worse than anybody's saying. And the good news is much better. In fact, because we know about grace, we are able to look in the mirror a little more steadfastly than we could otherwise and say, what is really wrong? What's the base problem? Where is this injustice coming from? Where is the sin coming from? So, this is a year for the just king. We've been talking about that. And we've been going through Scripture, getting to this question, which we're going to be doing all through Lent. Why crucify the just king? You notice, notice in your bullets that I said something like kill, shame, murder, um, execute, um, humiliate. We don't, we don't get the word crucify. We'll talk a little bit more about that, what all was involved with that. But um, So during Lent, there's going to be a number of invitations for you to press in and do a little more. There's a... There's a a Lenten study guide that's in the, uh, in the back you can pick up. And each week there's uh, just one page. You can, you can read some scriptures and answer some questions. This week is here. Next week is here. So do the first two pages, if you would, for next time. I also put uh, some other invitations um, in your bulletin. Exercises to grow, think, act more like our just king. It says there, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. 
So there's different kinds of invitations there. Some of them are individual things that you do by yourself. Other of them are corporate things that we could do together. For example, chew is something we can all do together. Um, th this would be something you can study on your own. Chew is a chance to discuss things together. Then there are some ways we sometimes subtract things as well as add things. So the back side talks about some fasting options. That's really an opportunity to, to make space. And then number eight there should really be a, a separate thing. That talks about adding a new exercise, like study, um, like the study guide, or joining a small group, or prayer. It lists some times we have prayer. Um, so those are imitations, but I want you to notice this other thing is in there intentionally, so you don't make it a religion thing, but you make it a gospel thing. And I'd like you to, to take a look at that and think about, about that as you press into that. This is not an invitation to be better at being a good person. This is an invitation to get closer to the crucified king. Okay? And an opportunity to have him speak his love into your life. So, um, so our question, why crucify the just king? Excuse me a minute while I back up because we've been doing since January, we've been trying to go through this kingdom and justice in the biblical story, getting to this point of the cross. So let's go quick. God created a beautiful, wonderful world. We were in the image of God and everything was right and just. And then we messed it up because we rebelled against God, created unjust relationships. And it got worse from family to society to between societies and language groups. Remember, remember Cain had the opportunity maybe to be different than Adam and Eve, but God said sin is crouching at your door like an animal that wants to grab you. You have to conquer it. But he didn't. And none of us sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, have done so since. We're part of, enslaved by, that sin and injustice and the results of that. So God built a just, holy nation kingdom. He started with Adam, with Abram, and built this nation that would bless all the nations. What does a nation need? It needs a God, Yahweh as king, people. And, in, and that happened when Israel became the people of God at Sinai, a just culture that was laid out. We talked about that through the times Yahweh is the just king we talked about. They were given a land that they could prosper on and then a king and a temple and a covenant with David where they would have a chance to be ruled by a king under God and relate to God in the temple. And they were supposed to be a blessing to all the nations around them. And it kind of was fulfilled under David and Solomon in the early days. It looked like God had done that, built his great just holy nation. But then... After the temple was built, they messed it up. God disciplined his kingdom because of their injustice of worshiping idols and oppressing the poor because of their sin and injustice. And that, that resulted in idol worship, this, the vision of the kingdom. Then the uh, Assyrians took Israel away for all of their sins and oppression and Judah as well. And the prophets kept talking about that. And they were under the, those kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and finally, God brought a remnant back, spread out the rest of the nation in order to prepare for his coming Messiah and kingdom. Um, I won't go into the details there, but we've had some sermons from, from Pastor Andrew about this exile time when they came back. And then Jesus begins the just kingdom of God. We talked about that. So in that exile, there was this time when they realized that we need this Davidic king. We need to get back to the justice. We need, And then some of the prophets started to... to to realize and hint that, you know what? 
we don't have it in this realm. We're going to have to have an invasion from outside of this realm. To, the Messiah is going to have to come in in a, in, a, in a radical way to change this system because it's not working for us. And, you know, when you think about the outrages, I was just studying this week, um, Daniel has this prayer, Daniel 9. I'd love you to pray that when next time you're angry. He says, we. Daniel was a good guy. As far as we know, he did pretty much everything right. But he said, we messed up. We committed idolatry. We. And so, we, that's the thing that gets me. See, I, you know, like when, when Christians act really stupid, I want to say, they are not me. I'm a smart Christian. I'm a grace. He's an idiot. But actually, I need to go like Daniel and say, we have messed up. And when America messes up, I can't say, oh yeah, America. So I need, we have messed up. We need to confess our sins. We, when, when we as white people mess up, I need to say, we did that. When we, when we guys mess up. That's the problem with looking at Harvey Weinstein. It's like, he's a guy. It's hard to say just him, they, we, and so that confession of we, and, and the we have got to have a Messiah, a deliverer, somebody outside who's going to rescue us from this. So Jesus came. God sent his king, his Messiah, Jesus, to keep the promise to Abraham and his descendants. The goal of the promise is beginning a just kingdom. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus accomplished this. He was the justice bringer. Remember that Matthew, Andrew talked about this. The time promised by God has come at last. Jesus announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And Andrew told us that this was like when an invasion was coming and somebody passed the secret message, hey, the new king is coming. The just king is coming. You need to enter into that kingdom, obey that king instead of this king. And that was a really dangerous thing to be obeying a king that wasn't ruling yet, right? But this is what Jesus is announcing. This is the, the declaration that went ahead of time and said, hey, I'm coming, switch your allegiance to me so that when I arrive, I can see by evidence that you have been loyal to me. So we're in that in between time. Jesus is saying he's coming. And the people, the things he did were amazing. Um, Tetwood says, God sent Jesus in fulfillment of the promise to be the supreme justice bringer, more than the judges, more than the kings, more than the prophets. Jesus depended on God by faith and prayer. He was enabled by the Holy Spirit, motivated by love and compassion. He inaugurated the kingdom of God by mighty acts of justice, the proclamation of justice, especially the poor, the outcasts, and the sinners. The combination of the mighty acts of justice, his hand, and the proclamation of justice resulted in the formation of the new community of the people of God, the kingdom of God, which was characterized by a just social shape. So justice was coming in this kingdom. All taken together res resulted in the witness to the world. Some rejected that witness, didn't go into that kingdom. Others accepted and said, yeah, let's have the kingdom. In his death and resurrection, Jesus modeled the pursuit of justice, washing feet, even to death, and laid the foundation for justification with God and people and victory over the devil, sin, and death. But why crucify the just king? You see, the disciples and everybody around thought, hey, this is it. He's the one. Some of them thought this is the new Messiah. Now, some of them reacted and said, we can't have that because we want to stay in charge. Other people said, yes, he's here to free us. He's here to release us. And they welcomed him, for example, into Jerusalem to come in 
to deliver them, to challenge the powers that were there, the authorities that were there. They said it's going to be the new kingdom. He's promised it. And look at the way that he can calm the storm. He can resurrect people. He can heal people. He can forgive sins. This is it. And then he was crucified. And he wasn't just like some kind of a rebel leader who with his army came in and they happened to lose. No. All of his followers deserted him. One strike with a sword, and Jesus said, that's not how we're doing it, and they were gone. And then he was killed, lynched, but not just lynched, but officially executed, but with that kind of humiliation that goes with lynching, that kind of uh, shame, that kind of display. Um, so why did they crucify the just king? Now, what I want you to know is that nobody likes crucifixion. And we don't really get it. It's this really religious thing, and the cross is this really religious thing, but people at that time knew exactly what it was because they saw it happen. It was the worst punishment warning only happened to slaves and the lowest and the felons, and they hung them out naked, bloody, on the street corner. Not Even an electric chair doesn't quite make it because that's kind of in a private room, and it's supposed to be sort of uh, you know, somewhat sane and quick, and they kind of cover their face, and it's supposed to be sane. But this was public sometimes for days, the, the blood loss, the shame, it's ultimate shame and humiliation that happens in crucifixion. That is not um, what we want to think of. So crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity, the last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment. Degradation was the whole point. The shame of crucifixion in the Roman world deals in debasement, degradation, finally dehumanization. Crucifixion was part of the process of declaring an executed criminal worthless without even the dignity of a four-footed beast, more like an insect to be squashed and pinned up. Crucifixion was a manner of exe or execution that piled shame upon shame to show that the victim was not fit for human company at any level. Executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or in a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. So why crucify the just king? Why not just hang him? Why did God choose to have himself crucified? And humiliated. In fact, it doesn't even talk very much about the physical pain. It talks about the humiliation much more in the Gospels. Um, why crucify? Now, this, this is the kind of Jesus we'd like to have. Right? He's your buddy. He's good. He welcomes you. The songs we sang earlier today were great about Jesus with open arms and Jesus with Pentecost. But you know what? 
We don't get to the open arms except by the cross. And we don't get to Pentecost except through the cross. And we don't get to resurrection except through the cross. But we want to have all that without the cross. Right? A powerful Jesus. A buddy Jesus. A nice Jesus. A forgive and forget Jesus. A cool Jesus. Respectable Jesus. There's nothing respectable about crucifixion. It's the opposite. It's shame. We want a strong Jesus. In fact, if we're going to have a crucifixion, let's have one like this. That's the way the movie is supposed to end. That's the way that the disciples thought it was going to end. Rambo is going to, at the last minute, break those things off and the legions are going to come from heaven and we're going to see who's really in charge. But it didn't happen like that. And then the people who followed him didn't forget to mention that he was humiliated and crucified. And that was so disgusting to everybody else. And let me tell you something. There is no other religion in the world that has a crucified God. There's ones that have resurrected gods. There's ones that have victorious gods. And a lot of people, Muslims, this is one thing they really don't like. And they just say, you know, Jesus wasn't really crucified. It's not possible for God, for Allah, to be defeated. It's just not possible. But historically, it happened. Jesus was crucified. And it's the most important historical event ever. And it's the central piece of Christianity. It's what makes it different from other religions. Why crucify him? So now, the disciples didn't get it. So here's Luke 24. He talks about Jesus comes along these other disciples. They don't recognize him. He starts having a conversation. They're talking about what's been happening. He says, what happened? He said, what do you mean? You don't know what happened? He said, what, what happened? That these things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. He was a prophet. He did powerful miracles. He was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. We were ready, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to the Romans to be condemned to death, and then they crucified him. And because he was crucified and publicly shamed, humiliated, and dead, we had hoped he was the Messiah. We had hoped he was the just king who had come to rescue Israel after hundreds of years. A thousand years since David, we thought he was the one. This all happened three days ago. We had hoped the disciples were crushed. All of that prediction they thought the just king was coming was crushed. Because he wasn't just killed. He was crucified. It wasn't a hero's death. It was a crucifixion. It was a humiliation. It was an obliteration of this supposed 
king of the Jews, the mockery that was put on his cross. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this was everything that was predicted that nobody expected. Nobody expected this. Even though Jesus, in every gospel, says it at least three times, I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem. For three days, I'm going to rise from the dead. He told them, and they still couldn't get it. It still didn't compute. And I think after 2,000 years, it still doesn't compute for us. Certainly for people outside the church. We, we sort of get why we have a cross up here, but we've never seen a crucifixion. And I can't show you any picture. You can actually, you know, I, I googled some pictures that actually showed some real crucifixions that were gruesome. I can't show you how horrible it is to be crucified. But everybody at that time knew exactly how horrible it was. So, Um, we have some various depictions of the crucifixion that emphasize various things, right? One here probably emphasizes more Jesus enthroned on the cross. The other one emphasizes more the horror of the cross. And Liz didn't even want me to put this picture up. She said, that looks like a horror movie. Yep. It was a horror movie, but worse. We can't we can't even get the horror of it. The horror of carrying the sins of the world, the horror of being forsaken by God, the horror of everything. Crucifixion was horrible. It was the most extreme physical torture, but most humiliating and degrading, like I mentioned. And the horror beyond that of where is God? We thought he was coming to bring the just kingdom. We thought he was gathering his people. We thought he was the king, the one, the just king who had come. We thought this was how God was becoming king again. So we still have to come back to this question that we're going to be dealing with these next time. Why was Jesus crucified? Why? I'll give you a few hints. We'll spell them out a little bit more later. But um, first of all, the guilty one should pay, right? We get upset when there's impunity, when people get away with things, unless it's us. We get upset when that happens because it makes the world unjust. So the person who pays has to pay back in measure with what they've done. And the only person who could do that would be a person, right? But they can't. It's too big for us. When I look at all the injustices and I realize how much I'm a part of them, I can't pay 
restoration or reparations or make things right. It's too big. Because it's not only not doing bad things, righteousness is doing right things, right? Seeking justice. Doing the good things. Only God can do that. So only the God person can make it just and right. And how could he do that? Um, I want you to realize that the crucifixion is offensive. And it's the most important thing in Christianity. The Gospels, we can't ignore all that happened in Jesus' life, but the Gospels spend a third to a quarter of each Gospel talking about the crucifixion. Crucifixion and the resurrection. It's really important to them. And they see all of his life as part of what happened there. And and the resurrection, of course, goes with it. The resurrection is God's vindication of Jesus. But a lot of us want to just have a resurrection. Right? We'd like to have a resurrection Christianity with none of that messy cross stuff. We don't want to go through the cross to get to the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says something that I, I don't know that I still get, but it's always kind of stuck in my craw. Um, you remember Paul was a, he was, he was a top, of, top intellectual religious leader, studied under the foremost teacher of the time, he was in the upper echelons, both religiously, intellectually, other ways. But he says this in 1 Corinthians. He says, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. It's offensive. How could that be? As the scriptures say, it will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters, which Paul was one of, before he gave it all up and went off traveling around to get beaten up in various places? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to, to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. And let me tell you, it's the same now. Religious people, really religious people, aren't very impressed. You take your sheet out, and you can see the... Uh, the religious side here, I tell you, I can so easily move into this religious side. You look at the bottom, it says, my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. I get to be the older brother. If and when I'm li not living up to standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. On the other side, one up here, he says, my self-view is not based on my, in the gospel, the good news. My self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I'm simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I'm so bad that he had to die for me. Die for me. He had to be crucified for me. 
and I'm so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. The, the bottom one there, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, and so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. The other side, the good news, is my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace. Not how much I study the Bible or what I do for Lent or how much I pray. I'm saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I what I am. So God has done what we could never do in the most painful, excruciating, humiliating way possible. He goes on. But to those called by... So at the same time as religious people don't like it, secular people, Greeks, don't like it either. It's not wise. It's not, it's not really intelligent thinking. And you'll find all kinds of even Bible scholars who, are, who find ways around and other things that, you know, Jesus, the historical Jesus was really kind of this, you know, and they'll find something else. But people don't like a crucified God. We want a Rambo God. We want a superhero. Not, especially not one who says, take up your cross and follow me. If he wanted to do all that and just you know, take care of it for me, and then I can just live in resurrection, that's one thing. But if he wants me to follow him, that's a different thing. So, but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser, wiser than the wisest of human plans. And God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. God's weakness on the cross is stronger than the greatest human strength. His lowly despised is better. So, we... Um, there's another depiction of Jesus with, with uh, uh, yeah, I won't, I won't take time to explain each of them. But um, the, one, the one on your, this one, he's actually covered with the sores of the people who tended to be at this chapel. The, the one on your, on your uh, bulletin cover there, I, uh, <clears throat> that one is from the, from the cover of the book. So I've, I've read a number of books. I'm especially using this one. Um, by Fleming Rutledge, but uh, the explanation of that window, that window is in the uh, 16th Street Baptist Church. Um, and you may remember, if you watch the movie Selma, for example, some, some girls went, and went to church in their little dresses and they got blown up by a KKK um, bomb. People of Wales gave this the window that's on your bulletins to the to the uh, to the church, which is a functioning church again. But you notice in the bottom it says, "You did it to me." When injustice happens, you do it to me. We do it to Jesus, and so Jesus had to be crucified in this way because he had to have the most extreme humiliation degradation, abuse, because 
there's a lot of extreme degradation, abuse, and humiliation in our world, and he had to absorb that in himself. The bad news is much worse than anybody's telling you. Politicians, media people, climate change experts, the bad news is a lot worse. And the good news is much, much better. His grace is much better. If you don't know why Jesus had to be crucified, Anselm says, you have not weighed the gravity of sin. You don't know how bad sin is. You don't know how bad injustice is if you're like, do we really need a crucified Jesus? Couldn't he have just gotten hung? Because sin is a responsible guilt for which atonement must be made. I'm responsible. Somebody's got to pay for this, and I can't pay for it. It's also sin and death, and injustice is an alien power enslaving all people that must be defeated. So when we're singing about God as the victor, God is, and even on your uh, bulletin cover, you'll see on the one hand, Jesus, his one hand is out here. The other is repelling, defeating sin and death. And so at the same time, Jesus was crucified and enthroned. He was on, naked on the cross. He defeated the powers and authorities, including sin as a power. Do you, you remember the, how did the song go that, uh, um, trying to think of the song, he, he uh, broke, the, broke the chain and set me, no, I'm trying to think of the song. But, yeah, broke the power of cancel sin. He, he both cancels sin and the debt. What's the song I'm thinking of? I can't. Um, no. Anyways, everybody, don't you love when teachers do that? What am I thinking of? Um, um, the the uh, broke the broke the power. <laughs> he broke the power of canceled sin and set the captives free. He he both he both removed my guilt and set me free from the power of sin. I can't think of it offhand, but. Um, the, it's, a, it's a classic hymn. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And how, how does that line go? Yes. Right. Amen. God both breaks the power of sin and breaks the penalty of sin. And somehow, I don't totally get it, but hopefully by the end of Lent, I'll get it better, and you will too. All of this had to come together. So we're going to be looking through the next weeks of Lent at some of the different pictures and metaphors and themes that Scripture has. So next week, we'll look at the Passover and the Exodus and how that is a picture that Scripture uses and Jesus used to explain what he was doing because that's what we're doing right here. Why doesn't the worship team come as we move into uh, the just king was crucified to make us right and just with God and with others who we sinned against and to free us from the power, the powers of sin 
and death of injustice. We have to be free. And only God can do that. So, looking ahead, and, and if the others could uh, come up, Jesus chose the Passover. He chose the Exodus event. Those, the servers could come up to uh, serve. He chose that as the time when he said, this is my blood broken for you. He welcomes us to the table to remember his broken body, to remember what he did for us. And in Scripture, this is one event. We don't quite celebrate it that way, but it started Thursday night at supper. He ate a last supper with them. He explained it all, and he went straight from there to the garden where he prayed all night and then was captured and then taken to be tried and then crucified and then three days later resurrected. All of that is the most significant event in history. It transformed everything. Because the just king not only came, but he conquered. He not only pointed out sin, but he paid for it. And that is what we are welcomed to celebrate, to remember at the table with Jesus. So Jesus, we want to thank you for your unfathomable gift. Thank you for giving yourself. Father, thank you for giving your son for us to be cleansed, to be freed, to be whole, to be forgiven. Not in a, oh, just forgive and forget, it'll be better way, but a way that really paid our debts. So Lord, we we ask that you would help us to grasp that even in this moment as we meditate on your sacrifice, as we participate with you again in this supper where you told us to remember. Amen.